Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. What changes when other piano players perform Billy Joel's music? What elements shine through? What's it like to be tasked with performing music written by one of the most popular recording artists of the 20th century? This is the second installment of our two-part series where we talk with piano players who have been tasked with interpreting and performing Billy's music. Previously, we spoke with Michael Cavanaugh, who led the pit band through hundreds of performances of the hit Broadway production Moving Out. This time, we're speaking with Hyung Ki Ju, the classical pianist and comedian who arranged and performed the recordings on 2001's Fantasies and Delusions. Join us for the second installment of our two-part series, where we dig deep into the music of Billy Joel with musicians who've learned and interpreted these pieces. As Jack and I geared up for this episode and more specifically the conversation with Young Ki, I really didn't know what to expect. Historically, I've mostly been familiar with Young Ki on the periphery. I was certainly aware and familiar with Fantasies and Delusions. The album came out when I worked at Sony. I, you know, had listened to the album on and off over the years. It's not an album I go back to as much as the pop records, admittedly. And I'm familiar with the comedic duo that we'll get into a little bit. But I really didn't know the nuts and bolts of how his career got together, his relationship with Billy Joel, and you know where he's at today. So it was a real treat learning a lot about him. Yeah, I spent a couple of years as a community journalist prior to this podcast, and I did a, a handful of really great interviews uh, with a lot of a lot of local people in and around Philadelphia, but especially Ted Rundgren, Maceo Parker, and a few others. And Maceo Parker, and you know, a couple of people I spoke with were such powerful interviews, and this goes in like that top five for me, where just the interview itself was like a powerful experience where as an interviewer, I'm hanging on the edge of my seat for dear life because the person I'm interviewing or speaking with, in this case, Michael and I are speaking with, have such control over the moment that you're like, you're terrified that like whatever you're going to say next is just going to ruin the vibe that they've created. And, and you're kind of stuck between trying to enjoy this like really magical moment and making sure it moves along smoothly. It's been a long time since I was really that far on the edge of my seat during a conversation. And this was definitely one. He really played the conversation like a piano. You know, when he wanted it to be light and funny, it was light and funny. When he wanted to like stop time and make a point, time stopped and he made a point. It was really great. Just doing the interview itself was fantastic. You and I may have been the interviewers, but I really felt like he was the conductor. We always have our list of questions that we want to make sure we hit on and bring up. And Young Ki was so intuitive that, gosh, he probably tapped into a good half dozen of them before we even got around to bringing them up. That's how in tune he was to the conversation and the direction things were going. I'd like to say he played us like a fiddle, but he's the piano player of the duo. So with that in mind, there's a couple of quick background pieces 
on Hyung Kiju. Currently, along with his own performances and compositions, he's one half of the classical comedy duo E. Goodsman and Jew. He plays a piano, and E. Goodsman is a violin player, so he plays a fiddle. And just to clear up any misconceptions, if you bought a copy of Fantasies and Delusions when it came out, you'll know, of course, that the cover says the music was performed by Richard Jew. Richard and Hyung Ki are the same person. He went by Hyung Ki for a long time, uh, switched over to Richard for a while around Fantasies and Delusions, and has since gone back to being referred to as Hyung Ki. So if you look on Spotify now, or if you purchase a digital copy of the album, you'll see that the cover now says Hyung Ki Ju, and yes, it is the same person. But as they say in Spinal Tap, hey, enough of my yakking. We hope you dig it as much as we had fun doing it. So let's get into our conversation with Hyung Ki Ju. Hyung-Ki, thanks so much for speaking with us today. It's a pleasure. Am I actually in a glass house? Are we in a glass house? <laughs> a great existential question, right? <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into the album, for people who aren't familiar with you, can you tell us about your work prior to Fantasies and Delusions? I am essentially a classical pianist and composer. So I was just doing the, the traditional trajectory of a classical musician, which is to... I mean, I went to a school called the Yehudi Menuhin School, then studied in New York at the Manhattan School of Music. So was uh, pretty much set on trying to somehow, you know, fulfill the, the, the role of a, of a classical pianist, a classical composer. Before I met Billy, I had a fair amount of performing experience and had composed a few things, but my professional career as such had not really taken off. So the things that I'd done were, were limited, for sure. How then did you end up coming to work on the album? I was living in Vienna between 93 and 95. Billy's brother, Alexander Joel, is a phenomenal conductor, classical conductor, and he was studying here in Vienna. And uh, we just became very, very good friends. He's really one of my best friends. And... Uh, I think, yes, in 94, Billy was on tour with River of Dreams and he performed at the Vienna Stadthalle. And of course, you know, thanks to Alex, uh, we all got tickets. And of course, I, I was familiar with who Billy was growing up as a child in the 70s. That's part of the sort of the soundtrack to the 70s, you know. Don't go changing. Um, so I, I certainly knew who he was, but... My field was classical music, so my great heroes were, you know, Bernstein and Menuhin and, and so forth. It, it didn't really interest me so much to meet a rock star, more the fact that I'm meeting Alex's brother. After the show, we went to the Sacha Hotel where Billy was staying, and it was just a very small group of us. That's when I first met Billy and started talking with him. And that's when I realized this guy is not a rock star. He is someone who is incredibly passionate about classical music. This is his real love. And it was, it was ironic because having seen this guy just now, just, you know, a few hours earlier for three hours performing music, 
you know, which was ear splitting, not not him, not his music, but just because being in a, you know, that that sort of environment, I think it was the first time I was in a sort of rock audience environment in a stadium. You know, I'm used to hearing a Beethoven symphony or a Brahms quartet, you know, it's like, what the fuck? And at that time, he was still like doing, you know, somersaults off the piano and being quite acrobatic. So real, real rock star, you know, show. And then here he is sitting in the bar, it's just us. And he's like, so tell me about Beethoven. And do you know this thing by Schumann? And, and why did Schubert do this? And do, do you know that bit in the Patatique that goes like this? And I was like, what? This guy knows more about classical music than a lot of my colleagues and, and peers and, and, and students. I was like, who is this guy? I mean, this is unbelievable. Of course, we stayed up drinking till about five o'clock in the morning. And I would say 98% of the conversation was just about classical music. And I remember just going away feeling like electric because it's so rare, believe it or not, that you meet someone who is so passionate about the music that you love yourself. And I would even go so far as to say, not only did he, does he and did he know more than a lot of my colleagues, but I think that his passion for classical music would put a lot of my colleagues to shame. So that, that was my introduction to Billy. It's amazing how he's always come across to me too as like a historian. He loves learning and soaking up information, whether it be world history, US history, and music. I think he got pegged early on as just a certain type of guy, but it's it's incredible how you describe how well-versed he is in, in classical music and so many other genres as well. If you, you know, ever have the opportunity to go to his home, uh, you'll see that the soundtrack to his home is Beethoven. He has the Beethoven radio channel on the entire time. No kidding. Probably he has it on when he sleeps as well. I don't know, but I mean, you know, it's it's on in the toilet. It's on everywhere. And so, you know, that's really that's really his passion. And was he working on any of those pieces when you first met him? I think he was. He, he definitely, uh, very hard to say, to, to, to codify what working is, but I think he definitely had strains and, and I think he already knew back then that he wanted to leave behind the world of singer-songwriter and mm -hmm. go into the world of writing music that would pay homage to the, to the masters that he really admired ever since his childhood. And I think that's why he was asking all those questions as well. And wait, that was 94. So it was only... Two years later, I think two years later was the next time that I saw him in person. And I think already then he had some snippets, let's say, under his fingers. Mm -hmm. And he would play them to me and say, you know, I've just come up with this and this is the kind of music I want to write now. What do you think? You know, I come from, um, I mean, I was born in England but uh, my parents are from Korea, and I, funnily enough, I also look Korean. And um, you know, I, I have this sort of very traditional Asian parent background, where sort of, you know, you must tell truth, you must be honest. You know, most important right. thing is integrity. This is man personality, is integrity, character. So, um, so you know, I was never really guided or taught to like maybe to speak diplomatically 
or you know offer lip service or just you know right. sugar top things so here was you know super famous rock star billy joel asking me for my opinion on his latest snippets and i just mm. answered him very honestly and said well that's not very good and this and this you're just you're just stealing this from chopin and i mean that's you know this there's no counterpoint here and you know what what's with your left hand and he must have felt like shooting me or something i mean it must have been taunt but i think my honesty was actually in the end the thing and of course he realized that i was speaking with also um with with you know with with certain expertise that that i wasn't just bullshitting that i mean that i knew what i was talking about i think that must have somehow impressed him that uh, first of all that i was uh, willing to be honest with him and secondly that the that the information that i was sharing with him could be useful to him and so i think that over the next few years whenever we would meet he would feel comfortable to trust me with his newest whatever sketches mm -hmm. and in 1999 around march april i guess i was going to have my carnegie recital hall debut in new york city and i knew that he had written one piece soliloquy that was one of the pieces that i had heard in little snippets over the years someone had already notated it and i think someone had already performed it in tanglewood or something like this so so i knew about this i called him up and i said listen i've got my new york recital debut coming up and i would love to premiere your piece give it a new york premiere and and also sandwich it with people like beethoven and prokofiev and ravel and give it the legitimacy that i feel it deserves and also, you know, it would be, be great for me. I mean, you know, fantastic to, to have the honor of, of doing that. He fortunately said, yeah, sure, go for it. And um, gave me his blessing to do it. And he came to that concert, heard me play it. And very shortly afterwards, he called me up and said, listen, I think you really understand my music. I love the way you play it. But I think you also understand what I'm trying to say and what I'm trying to do. And would you be interested in notating and helping me to craft all these handful of pieces that I have swelling in my head and um, eventually record them? And I said, let me think about this. <laughs> no, I said, I said, of course, I'd be, I'd be honored. Uh, and uh, so I think it was like a two-year two -year quite intensive working process because we recorded the album yeah, in 2001. So, so yeah, so the, I think he called me around June 1999, and then I got working straight away. And then I think all 10 pieces, and there were some other pieces actually that didn't make it on the album, like a piece called Elegy, the Great Peconic, which later he or orchestrated. So I worked on all those pieces for about, yeah, the next 18 months or something like that. Thinking back to how you were mentioning how you would give him the criticism and share your thoughts throughout the process of his, him working on these pieces, I'm hearing parallels in my head with the relationship he used to have with Liberty DeVito, his drummer. These guys were with him before he became Billy Joel, so they weren't afraid to tell him 
you know, if a lyric was terrible, a melody was a rehash of somebody else's songs, they were going to tell him right away. And so I think that's something he needs in a creative partner, someone who's not afraid to speak up like you did. Well, one of the great things about Billy that I, I'm, I'm sure you've somehow felt is that he's an extremely humble and modest person. Never in all the years that I've known him has he ever bragged or come across as someone who thinks highly of himself or his achievements. If anything, the opposite. He usually thinks that what he just did is crap, regardless of whether it's a classical piece or a song. I know a lot of the songs that he wrote that are some of the greatest hits. At the time, he was ready to just kick them in the trash. And uh, I mean, I think just the way you are, he was like, right. this, is, this is crap, you know, and that, that <laughs> you know, that won the Grammy and everything. So there's a lot of stuff that he will make fun of even today. You know, he's a great stand-up, as you know. And when he, when he self-deprecates himself and, and the song, some of the songs he's written, how he did it and stuff, it's hilarious. But that's the way he really is. Somewhere he knows he's good, of course. I mean, you know, he has, he's, a, sure. he's an incredible, incredibly naturally gifted musician. He's an incredibly talented musician. But he's very well aware of uh, what he doesn't know, and he's not afraid to, he doesn't need to hide it. He's, he's very open about it. So I think whether it's Liberty or whether it's me or whoever it is, would come across and, you know, share a view that has some credibility. He's always open to it and always listening. You had mentioned that someone else had notated soliloquy. Uh, as he was writing these, was he notating these as he went? Or was it more of a rock and roll situation where he would write it and keep tinkering with it at the piano, you know, as opposed to just writing it out? Well, fortunately for me, Billy can't notate. That, that's why one of the reasons why I got the job is, I mean, although he, he can read music and, of course, you know, he, his, he started... Uh, training as classical pianist so of course at some point in his early life he he could notate and whatever but he he just hasn't he's just out of practice so he wouldn't know where to begin so thankfully that's where I could step in so well there were many ways we worked sometimes it would just be probably because he couldn't be bothered to come into the city or for me to go over there or he was too busy he would just you know uh, just put lay something down on a tape and then it would get, just get sent over to me. I mean, these mm -hmm. days before the internet. So, you know, it would arrive in a package. And then I would listen to the tape and then start notating and then arrange and make it into what I thought, what I, you know, think that he wanted. Then either we would meet in person mm -hmm. and I would play to him what I've done or I would send him a tape back and then we'd get on the phone, he'd tell me this and this. I mean, there, there were many ways that we worked. I mean, this was the year, years before Skype and whatever. So it was really just either meeting in person or phone calls or throwing tapes around. Because he wrote that way, uh, did you find that the music had a different sort of quality to it? Like, did it come out differently than from someone who was classically trained and might take a more formal approach to composing? You know, I think he did not care about what the critics were going to say about this. Mm -hmm. I mean, he knew that he didn't stand a chance against the cognoscenti, you know, the elite. And he wasn't making this album for them anyway. He was making this album for him. I actually recently, really not long ago, 
saw some interview on YouTube that he gave and he spoke about this album Fantasies and Delusions and he said I don't remember exactly what he said, but he said something like this album is the closest album to my heart and something like the closest album to what is me and certainly what is me now. And I think that when he made that decision to leave behind songwriting, knowing that inevitably that he would piss off so many fans and all his all his record companies and all the people behind him that are waiting, you know, for ka-ching, ka-chings and another hits and this and that, um, that he was just going to go write, you know, piano music where he's not even playing it himself. It's from a, from a purely superficial career point of view, a, a type of suicide. But of course, what does he care? I mean, he was on top of the world and uh, he right. doesn't need to produce another song if he doesn't want to. I mean, he, I mean, he made it so big time in every way. And this was the music that he wanted to write. And so what I think is very endearing about this album is there is an honesty. And to go back to your question, I think that, yes, the music may have been different had he known better. There is often something so special and unique about something that is untrained, unformalized. And I think that's what gives this album its charm. To me, as object, not just because I'm the, the performer, but as objective as I can be now with, with many years of distance, this is a man, obviously he's in a position to be able to, to record and, and afford this you know, luxury of, of doing this. But above that, he was driven by real hunger. I mean, like I told you from that moment that I met him, that's all that he spoke about. So this was fueling him. He wanted to write this music. He needed to get this out. And by the fact that he did not really know what he was doing, but because he's such a naturally gifted musician, it's very possible that had he gone to Juilliard and been trained, maybe the music would be from an academic point, more relevant. But mm -hmm. I think from an emotional point, it hits the point home where many formalized composers may not. And it, it, it makes me think about sometimes when I listen to amateur musicians play, a lot of the time they actually move me much more than professional musicians. And there's a hell of a lot wrong with everything they're doing. I mean, the, it's just, it's sloppy, it, the, it's unrhythmical, it's whatever. But these guys, they're playing with everything on their sleeves. Mm -hmm. And they don't give a shit about winning the Van Climen competition. Then That's not what they're in it for. They're just there to just make music the best that they possibly can. Mm -hmm. And so that energy comes across and I think that's that's the same kind of energy that comes across in these pieces is a real love and passion mm -hmm. for whatever was brewing inside him to come up and to finally not have the pressure for the first time in his career to be concerned with hits and record sales and marketing plans like you said he could strictly write from the emotional place in his life and not have to concern himself for the first time with any of that. And that takes a lot of courage, actually. 
I know of a few other artists of, let's say, similar success, similar stature, who just get trapped in their success. They're just trapped in trying to fulfill whatever's expected of them or whatever was their last hit and somehow trying mm -hmm. to keep it going. And really, they don't want to do it, but they somehow feel like they, they ought to. And right. um, subconsciously or, or, or consciously. And I think, um, I think it takes a lot of courage, really, besides the passion. But I mean, so much at stake, you know. But I mean, oh, yeah. it's like, I don't know, it's like Michael Jordan, you know, leaving basketball to play baseball. I mean, the whole world thought he was fucking crazy. Right. Right. He's the greatest basketball player, arguably of all time. He's making gazillions. He's not just his impact on the world, even for people who don't give a shit about basketball. I mean, this guy, Michael Jordan, was immense. And then he goes, you know what? Mm, I think I want to play baseball because that's actually what I always wanted to do. That's the same thing. It's exactly the same thing. And, and yes, he was in the position to do that and whatever, but still it takes incredible courage. I mean, the backlash from his fans, his managers, the sponsors. I mean, you can imagine. It's the same thing with Billy. That's a great yeah. parallel I didn't even think about. Yeah, you know, now we know what happened with his career, but it's easy to forget that at the time it was more of a risk. Uh, having not put out a pop album in a couple of years and, and people waiting to see what you did next and to have it not be something academic or something where he was trying to make a point, but instead it was something he wanted to make from an emotional standpoint. So I'm curious, you had said that he played a piece and you said, you know, what's your left hand doing or there's no counterpoint here. Do you recall how that improved or what changed? Well, I think that's where I was lucky. That's what was my role that I could introduce those elements that were lacking, only lacking because it was something that he had not, you know, formally been introduced to. Of course, he, mm -hmm. he knew this music inside out. As, as I told you, that's, that's all he listens to all day. And mm -hmm. he, he's not stupid. He has a phenomenal ear. So he, he hears all the counterpoint. He hears all the harmonic uh, juxtapositions and, and dexterities and, and all the uh, harmonic modulation possibilities and all the structural things. He, of course, he, he feels that, but he, he wouldn't know what to... It's like most of us can speak English, but you know whether we can teach it is another question. Someone came and said, could you please teach me English? We'd be like, um, is, you know, where does the preposition go? Uh, it's just something that right. we, we just have innately within us. So I think classical music is is a similar thing. It's innate, innately in him, but of course he, he doesn't really know how to formalize it, how, how to externalize it. <laughs> That's where I came in and would, let's say I was kind of his translator, so to speak. He would go, blah, 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 blah. And I would say, oh, do you mean like this? And mm. so that that was kind of the nature of our of our working relationship. And he would play me some things and then I would say okay is this what you mean is this what you would like and then either he would agree or he wouldn't and he would say no maybe that's a bit too you know it's maybe more like this I had to sort of read I had to guess uh, interpret what he wanted to say with it and did that also involve uh, helping to kind of string elements together. I know with the pop songwriting, it's a lot of pieces, parts that sometimes get Frankenstein into one song. Was that kind of the situation here as well? 
Yes, I mean, I'm trying to remember now, but I'm I'm pretty sure there were some moments where I would say exactly what you just said, that maybe it's too many ingredients in the soup. I mean, the guy was just overflowing with ideas and he just wanted to put them all in because he was just dying to get this all out. So a lot of the times I think I tried to simplify it, not in the sense of dumbing down, but in the sense of making it you, you know, like Beethoven, for example, is, is very simplistic in the sense it's very motivic. I mean, think of ba-ba-ba-bam. I mean, that's just four notes, you know. Mm-hmm. And, he, yeah. and he builds a whole symphony around that. And that's the simplicity of it. He, he doesn't have like a thousand themes and a thousand ideas. It's just this one thing and let's drive the point home. I'm sure there was a certain amount of editing on my side But again, as far as I was concerned, this was his music. He has final say, obviously, but that was Mm -hmm. always my approach. You know, I never tried to convince him of something, but I I cared for him and I, I really wanted his music to sound the best possible with all the best of my knowledge and with love for wanting to make this, this really the best thing possible. Because I'm a composer myself, I would try my best to sculpt what I thought would be the best interpretation of what he wants. So that was always what I was trying to do and then see what he has to say. We often hear Billy say in interviews that a big part of why you were brought in, apart from the arranging part, was that he said he couldn't play it. Can you describe what sort of qualities go into playing a classical piece versus what he was playing? I mean, obviously, you can figure the difference between Beethoven and Jerry Lee Lewis pretty easily. But we're all at this point pretty convinced that Billy's a really good pianist. So it's sort of odd to think, well, why couldn't he just play it? So what kind of qualities go into classical playing? It's probably, and I say probably because I'm not an expert on this, but it's probably like the difference between a ballerina and a breakdancer. I'm pretty sure that a ballerina can't really break dance and a break dancer probably can't, you know, run around on their toes. Right. They both can do absolutely mind-boggling, death-defying leaps and somersaults. They're both refined and trained in their own ways. I mean, break dancers, you know, yeah, okay. You might think, oh, it's just something that's, that's just done on the street. But those guys... They train for hours and hours and the things that they do, I mean, you need incredible fitness and, and, the, and the really great break dancers, I mean, that's artistic. That's beautiful stuff. That's where I'm lucky in that I was the ballerina in this. Billy's the break dancer and he, he can't, you know, he can't do what I do and I can't do what he does. You know, for a lot of people, because he is the piano man, of course, a lot of people will be like, what the, f- what, the- who- who's this little sidekick piano boy? You know, why does he have to like, you know, we, we don't need Robin, Boy Wonder. We just want Batman, you know, give us the real Batman. Who's this, you know, little kid, Asian kid that nobody knows about. And, and why him? You know, in a way, it's difficult to explain. I wish I had, I had that ballerina breakdancer analogy back then. Because I think that would have that would have helped people understand. It's exactly that for classical playing. You need you need certain sensitivity, certain nuances. There's there's all kinds of contrapuntal voicing that happens between the ten fingers. You play a four part Bach fugue. I mean, Jerry Lewis 
as wonderful as he is, probably wouldn't get past the Bach two-part invention. But that doesn't mean he's a bad pianist because, right. you know, uh, most classical pianists wouldn't be able to play Great Balls of Fire. And it's not that Great Balls of Fire is so difficult and that it would be inconceivable for a classical pianist to play it. But there's a certain type of touch and groove and approach yeah. that goes with playing rock piano like Little Richard. I mean, you know, it's, it's not just like a given that you can just play the piano while you're, you know, smashing the top keys with your foot. It's, it's, right. it's, a, it's a particular touch and talent yeah. and style. It sounds like a lot of the arranging and things happened over time. And so it's interesting to hear that you guys had to send tapes to each other and call, you know, before the internet really took off. What was it like in the recording studio? We're really used to hearing about Billy sculpting so much in the studio. Was everything pretty much set by the time you were ready to record? If there were, they were minimal. Minimal changes okay. during the recording session. I think... There were one or two things, but probably by that point, they were more questions of interpretation. And, you know, although they were pieces that I had worked on inside out with him over, you know, a period of 18 months, now that we are actually in the Colosseum, I mean, not the Colosseum, but you know what I mean, like actually in, in the moment. Yeah. And he's like sitting in the studio and this is it, you know, take one, take two, it's going down. I think probably he had that perspective to hear it and go, wait a minute, I think I actually want it more like this. So there were a few times when he would either come down or, or, or for the speakers say, you know, can it be, you know, a bit like this or whatever. So there was still a, a collaborative process in the recording session. That being said, he was such a respectful, graceful sweetie. And he basically just said, this is your show. He had so much mm. trust in me. And it's actually incredible because I had no real recording experience. I had not that much, you know, performing experience. And so the fact that he, he really trusted me to just sail this boat. And so normally he's, you know, used to being behind the driving seat himself, but he was just very happy to be in the back seat. And sometimes I would ask him, hey, what, what do you think of this? You know, how is this? He'd be like, hey, if, if it's good for you, it's good for me. That was mm -hmm. kind of very much his attitude, which was looking back, really admirable because I know so many artists who are total control freaks who would want to, you know, they're the Stanley Kubricks of this world who would just absolutely want to have every single millisecond perfectly framed and timed. And he's right. completely the opposite. He's just like, go rip, go for it, man. If you want to do another take, if you think, if you think it needs another take, do it. So very lucky. Do you remember how long the uh, recording process was? Oh, we had luxury schedule. Those were the days. Well, I mean, <laughs> right. it was 2001 and, you know, there was still money in the recording business. Obviously, this is a Billy Joel project. So right. there's a budget. 
we had a very comfortable five days in total. I could have even had a sixth day, sixth and seventh day if I wanted. And that's almost unheard of today. I mean, it, it just, it just wouldn't happen. I mean, now it would be like, you have three hours to get this done, you know? <laughs> and if you can't, there's a whole line of other people who could right. do it in three hours. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, it was super luxury. And the team from Sony Classical, Stephen Epstein and Richard King, they were just a dream team to work with. So for me, it's like, it can only go downhill from here, you know? I mean, it just, you know, you start off so like up there. I mean, it's really, it was an amazing experience. And the studio was in the city? No, no, actually, um, that was the one thing that I can't say I put my foot down. I mean, you don't put your foot down with Billy, but I was quite clear about that. I felt that this album should not be recorded in some studio, that it should actually be recorded in a concert hall in Vienna. He has so many ties to Vienna. We met in Vienna. His father lives in Vienna. He wrote a song called Vienna. And the music that he's trying to emulate, all of them lived or passed through Vienna. Beethoven is Vienna. So what are we doing recording in some place in Manhattan, as great as it might be? Right. You want this to be a classical album. Let's go to the Mozart Hall in the Vienna Concerthaus where there's a rich tradition where, you know, Brahms and Mahler and so on and so forth and record it where it belongs. Fortunately for me, the whole Columbia team flew over and we did it in Vienna. That's another testament too that he was open to even that suggestion. Yeah. Maybe now if I suggested, probably, you know, they'd say, well, mm, yeah, who are you kidding? You know, right, right. you've got three minutes to do it in the toilet. Was that common for classical pieces like that to be recorded in concert halls? It's, uh, I would say it's um, fairly common. Yeah. Yes, I mean, some, okay. some recordings, of course, would take place in studios or different environments. You know, some of them would be recorded in churches. But if you looked, you know, in the, on the back covers of a lot of LPs and CDs and actually looked where it rec was recorded, a lot of them were uh, concert halls. You spoke a lot about how this was a passion project for Billy, that he wasn't as concerned with pleasing the critics or charting. At the same time, though, the album did go to number one on the classical charts. Were you expecting such a strong reaction to the album? Honestly, no. I imagined just arithmetically that probably it would sell quite well. Obviously not selling well on, on the stratosphere that normally his albums would sell. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, I thought even if 1% of his record buying fans would buy this album, I mean, that's already quite a lot. I'm sure from the recording company perspective, it was not a success, obviously. But I was definitely surprised. I mean, from one side, not surprised because obviously it carries the name Billy Joel. But from another side, surprised also that it did so well because... It could have been really, really uh, shitted on and really, really criticized. Somehow, 
it was not scathed and like it, it, it i think i think it got a certain amount of respect even though of course there were comments in the press that you know but you know what the critics are like i mean i think even if a critic even if a critic loves something they they would have to write something bad about it because that that's what they are they're a critic they have to criticize do you know do you know the famous joke what does a music critic and a gynecologist have in common they're both looking for problems where others are looking for pleasure. Oh, that's good. <laughs> so, you know, those people yeah. that listen to Fantasies and Delusions or River of Dreams or whatever, they're looking for pleasure. And the critics, they're just, you know, they're not. Initial reaction when I think a lot of fans maybe have seemed surprised by things. To me, it's like, well, then maybe they haven't been listening so closely to his, his albums over the years because I feel like there's been elements of what this became throughout i think it's always been there always been there and if you go even back to his very first album cold spring harbor there's a piece called nocturne i believe and it's just pure piano chopin john field-esque writing and i think I mean, I wasn't around when Cold Spring Harbor came out, but I'm sure for a lot of people, they must have gone, eh? Like, you know, hearing She's Gone Away and, you know, and then getting to this one track where it's like, oh, wait, is the singer not coming in? I mean, I mean, it's just very unusual for a any kind of singer-songwriter album. I, I can't think, you guys would know better, yeah. but I can't think of... You know, Simon Garfunkel instrumental track or whatever, a, a Earth, Wind and Fire just instrument. I mean, I, you know what I mean? I mean, the, it's like, yeah, w where's the voice? And then, and then also right, the, yeah. the music is not really poppy and funky and kind of like, ooh, what's this? So right. already in his first album, yeah. he was doing that. And um, I mean, he's the first one to to admit in in his in his talks and lectures how a lot of the things he stole or borrowed from, from classical music. Leningrad is, is based on the Schumann Piano Concerto. I mean, the song This Night, as the chorus, actually quotes Beethoven. I mean, right. pretty That's much right. note for note. Right. So, yes, it was there all the time. He had Itzhak Perlman play on the Downeaster Alexa. He was, so, as you said, from the very beginning, he wasn't really running away from it he was always it was always mm -hmm. there you know the more we've been digging deeper into these records and songs more so than a lot of other pop artists of the day the songs were so complex but wrapped in a ear-pleasing pop song like there are so many layers to what he was doing musically that was not common in a lot of pop music then absolutely right think about the opening of honesty that could easily have been a uh, some Bruckner or Mahler something, you know, modulation. There, there's some very, um, a, a lot of his things like, um, uh, and so it goes, for example, ha, you know, has has tastes of sort of Copeland or, or you know, Samuel Barber. Again, you know, he, he had a lot of this uh, classical influence in his pieces. And, and look, he also would play classical music through the speakers before he would come on. And did you know that Phil Ramon, his producer on many of those albums, was actually a classical violinist who studied at Juilliard yeah, yeah. with Galamian, yeah. one of the greatest violin teachers. And so, so 
I'm sure that that, I mean, of course, Phil was very well-known and respected producer, but I'm sure, especially with Billy, there must have been some kind of special relationship there because they, they both could hook into the classical music. And I'm sure they understood that through line. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, yeah. and I bet Phil had a lot of input also because of his classical background. Oh, absolutely. I've, I've heard the stories of the guys say, you know, they referred to him as Uncle Phil, but they said he was, he was a band member. He was equally responsible for shaping these songs as anyone. And like you said, as influenced as Billy was by classical music, he didn't have that formal training in it. And so he had a more organic approach. When we spoke with Bradshaw Lee, who was a longtime engineer with Billy and Phil Ramone, he talked about how Phil knew about theory and had formal training. But when he was speaking about something he was recording, you know, like he didn't use academic language. He was more emotional about the song. So it's interesting then to think that they both had that classical background, but they didn't use it in the studio. Well, you know, like, like I was kind of trying to say earlier, I mean, sometimes an unformal approach brings something not only honest and emotional, but also something original. Think of like Tarantino's early films. I mean, I, I don't think the guy went to film school. He just watched a shitload of videos because he worked in a video rental store. That's all he did all day. He just watched videos. Yes. And he loved film. He just loves it. So, um, so his first two, three films were so fresh because they, they, they came from someone who didn't have to adhere to any rules of filmmaking. He just, he just made it up as he went along. And there's plenty of examples like that, you know, especially oh, yeah. a lot of people who are self-taught, you know, they, they, they're the ones in the end that actually produce something that's, that actually becomes a game changer for the next generation. You know what I think is a big shame? Well, there's two things that I think are a big shame. Is one that, and I'm, I'm speaking purely as a selfish fan now, that <laughs> Billy never did more covers of other people's songs. Because I love the way he sings other people's material. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, there are some examples that we have and, and of course at concerts sometimes he would do that I of course had the, the you know the fortune to hear him in sound checks and, and also hear him at home or whatever and he would just reel off songs by whoever and yeah. he's also so good at even imitating the voice he, he's so good at changing the quality of his voice he knew so many songs Gilvin and Sullivan Frank Sinatra I mean whatever and he could perform these fantastically and another thing that I think is a big shame for all of us is that he never did more comedic stuff because the guy is hilarious i don't know if you guys have ever <laughs> seen him uh when he's doing like questions and answers at universities yeah. and stuff like that he's a stand-up he's a stand-up comic he's hilarious again he was always shy and reluctant to be in front of the camera and to you know, to do Saturday Night Live skits and stuff like that. But he's brilliant. I mean, I know he's brilliant yeah. because he did a skit with us. I have a duo with a violinist called Alexei Gurusman. We have a duo called the Gurusman and Jew. He knows about my comedy side, let's say, my humorous side. And I, I do shows where I mix classical music with humor. And he's followed that over the years because when I was working on Fantasies and Delusions, I was also developing my classical music comedy act. So he would even come to 
downtown village and and see me doing that stuff so he's seen the development of that even at his wedding uh, alexa and i performed for him uh, some of our stuff so he's he was very familiar with that and very supportive and when we had our carnegie hall concert in 2012 he actually said oh guys what do you think about me jumping on stage with you and we were like fuck bring it on right let's do it (laughs) And I think that's actually quite incredible that he did that. He normally would not put himself in that situation. Actually, mm-hmm. one can see it on YouTube. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's... it's I like, have, it's great. Oh, you have, yeah. He's brilliant. And there's even some lines that he even wrote himself. Like, I guess it must be a case of pianist envy and stuff like this. He's brilliant. I think as an actor and as a stage animal, as a charismatic performer... There's so much there. He also even did something for us, which he never does. Uh, My friend and I, we founded a startup called Music Traveler. Besides being our first ambassador and supporter, he did a little ad with us where he's being silly, screwing around. He's funny. He's very good. He comes up great, you know. I'll never forget. I went to two Rainforest concerts in a row. You know, these are concerts that are organized by Sting for his Rainforest Foundation. Billy Joel, of course, regularly appears in those. And I went two years in a row where Billy was performing. The who's who is there. I mean, everybody's performing from Elton, Madonna, Joe Cocker, etc., etc. I mean, it's just three hours of like, wow. And then in the meantime, you've got all kinds of personalities coming on and giving speeches. Uh, John McEnroe, Sidney Poitier, whatever. I'll never forget the first concert where there were all these legends performing. I like James Teller and I, I, I like Elton John. I like a lot, a lot of these musicians that were performing. But there were two people that actually like owned the stage. And that was Billy Joel and Joe Cocker. And the reason why I'm mentioning this, for me, that was enlightening. Because I was just there as like, you know, a nobody and just seeing just one after the other legends coming on one after the other and then somehow feeling that they're as charismatic as they are and as much as i've admired them they didn't somehow own the stage billy walked on and he's not tall in stature at all as he would say himself i'm just a small stucky jewish guy you know but he just just the stage just and and this has nothing to do with my relationship to him right. it's just like wow bam and same with joe cocker as well and i and yeah. it was interesting that those two stood out for me billy just has a certain strength that yeah. gravity of this force of nature that just he just comes on and it's just you're just magnetized you're just yeah. glued whether he's yeah. talking or playing or whatever There's a logic to the madness why he sells out Madison Square Garden repeatedly. I mean, I think he's played there over 100 times now. Something ridiculous. You know, one thing I want to ask too before we wrapped up, um, do you have anything that you've been working on currently that you want to share with our listeners? Oh, well, I mean, one thing about Corona is that you have time. (laughs) That's true. There's nowhere to go, nobody to meet, no restaurants to go. So um, I've... Uh, had a bit more time on my hands to compose. That's something I love doing. Actually, I wrote a piece for 
Billy's child, Remy, when he turned one year old, I was invited to the birthday party. What do you take, you know, as a present to a kid that has everything besides, you know, already having siblings and all the hand-me-downs or whatever. So, I mean, what, what, what can I give that's going to possibly... So I just thought, well, I can at least write a piece. That's something that at least you can't find in Toys R Us. And so go. I wrote a piece called Rémy. And as you probably know, Rémy is actually a musical uh, Rémy, you know. And mm -hmm. what was interesting was, and I didn't expect this, was when I played the piece for Billy, because actually Remy was sleeping, so I had to record, record myself playing it. He actually said, oh, Remy, that never occurred to me. Really? <laughs> he never made that musical association with the solfege, with the do re mi. So, yeah, and the whole piece is kind of based on Remy, 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 re, and it's, it's, you know, it's like a yeah. one-minute piece. Um, so that, that's, some, well, that was, of course, before Corona, but... Uh, I just I just realized that um, uh, and that piece will be published soon uh, on Universal oh. Edition. So, um, yeah, of course, it'll be dedicated to Remy. Everybody will be like, who's Remy? But right. if they watch this, they'll know. <laughs> they'll know. When this album came out, I was 21. So my head wasn't there yet with it. 20, 20 year old rock kid who didn't quite understand the progression there. And I tell you, as the years have gone, I'm 41 now. It's grown on me considerably, and it's a real treat to listen to these years later. It really, it's a, it's a great work of art, and um, I'm really glad he tapped you to be a part of it. Well, obviously, it was, you know, one of the most epic moments of my life, for sure. I mean, it's something I'll never forget. That goes without saying. There's many things that are attached to this album that get a lot of credibility even still today. Just that whole quality of production behind it. I get a lot of sound engineer nerds who have come across it they find me they're like man the sound on the album it's like one of the best piano sounds and they're not making a backhanded compliment to me they're actually talking about the technical production of the sound so it, it, it gets a lot of uh, adulation from all different corners as much as some of the, the stuck up nose critics try to put it down uh, I do get m several people that are like serious classical maestri loving the album and really saluting him and he's been such a an ambassador for classical music it's an honor for, as a classical musician to have had this uh, relationship and friendship with him well jack and i can't thank you enough for taking the time to chat with us today it's been such a treat to hear your part in all of this and your experiences so thanks again it was so much fun yeah, this has really been a really insightful conversation. I really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Take care. Looking forward to seeing it and hearing. Take care, guys. All right. Were we right? Was that not a great interview? Was that not a great conversation? I still think it is. Yeah, man. Even after listening back to it, I'm still kind of breathing deep like, okay, we made it. And I tell you what, he just made us feel so comfortable and at ease right out of the gate. And he was just so personable and so funny that it was like talking to somebody you've known for years. Yeah, yeah. And we've had such a great run of interviews so far. To say this almost feels like we're saying it at the expense of all the other amazing guests we've had. And they've all been great. This was just a 
just a different kind of conversation. It's a good opportunity to really just think about in our first year, all the people we've had the great pleasure of speaking with from Mike Del Judas to Malcolm Gold, Liberty DeVito himself, engineer Bradshaw Lee, Andy Gilmartin, Sue Stegmeyer, yeah. And of course, Michael Cavanaugh a few episodes ago. There's so many people either directly connected with Billy or even indirectly connected with Billy who have been touched by his music and hearing all of these stories come together in one place. I just feel really fortunate and grateful that we've been able to be tasked with curating and collecting all of these great stories just to have an audio document of the impact Billy Joel has had on so many. So now it's your turn. We really want to know what you thought of this conversation. And I'm really curious now if anybody went back and listened to that album again. You know, if you're like us, you listened to it, you enjoyed it. When we were younger, we didn't have the head for it. So it kind of collected a little bit of dust. Uh, We've since dusted it off ourselves. And if you've done the same, we're really curious if hearing some of the stories behind it has given you a different perspective or a new appreciation for the recording. I'll tell you, me personally, listening to it in 2021 as opposed to 2001 when it came out, I really can hear much more of a connection between this album and the pop records that came out prior. There's really more similarity than I ever gave credit before. I'm going to have to give it another listen now just to listen for that. Also, really, it's been 20 years. We're getting old, man. This ain't cool. (laughs) That was half my life ago. I don't like to think like that. I know, right? It's been a long road waiting. But uh, yeah, there it is. Shoot us an email. Glasshousespodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, and you can also find us all over the socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. If you just search Glasshouses Billy Joel Podcast, you will find us there. Your comments, your likes, your shares all mean a lot to us. And the comments especially and the emails because we love hearing your thoughts and your stories. And it sparks some great conversation that Jack and I don't always think of on our own. Just hearing your experiences. And it's so great to know that there's others out there who have had these shared connections. So please keep those coming. I also, I don't know what it is, but I love when people say something like, I saw him for the first time in 84. You know, just something about that's real cool. Because, you know, best we can do is watch the videotapes. You know, just hearing a little something from somebody who was there, it's fun. You know, it's really something. And if you're one of the 14.8% of people that listen to us on Apple Podcasts, if you could be so kind as to give us a positive review and a five-star rating, we really appreciate it. Uh, Not only does it boost our frail egos, but the more five-star ratings and positive reviews we get, the more of an indication it is for Apple Podcasts to put us in front of more listeners. So it's always a fast, easy, and free way to help support us. Absolutely. And, you know, I just want to say how grateful we are for all of you for listening. Uh, You know, Jack and I enjoy talking Billy all the time anyway. It's a lot of fun for us, but it's such a treat to know that we're reaching this Billy Joel community and you keep listening. We'll keep recording. That's just as simple as that. We've got so much to go here that we can't wait to see what unfolds. And with that, we're going to wrap this one up. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. We will see you again in a couple weeks. We'll see you next time.